I'm very friendly and very approachable person, but I actually used to play college hockey. <laughs> so women's ice hockey. <laughs> so if whenever I'm in a tough situation and I've got that smile on my face, I just think about, Katie, put the helmet on. <laughs> so I tell myself to put my hockey helmet on and, um, and then I sort of get in that zone. Um, I played hockey in, in college as a, a previous figure skater. So I'm very eloquent, but I love that, you know, sort of be, I, I have a tough edge to me as well. So that's, that's what most people don't know. So sometimes we meet people who appear to us in one way, but once we get to know them, they are in fact very different. Someone who, when allowed, goes into their creative cave, spending months, if not years, pursuing their quest, only to emerge with the work of genius that may change the way the world perceives a particular subject. Well, that is what we're talking about in today's episode of Top Traders Unplugged. Welcome back to Top Traders Unplugged, where the best traders in the world come to share their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Let's rejoin the conversation with your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned the word track record, and I just wanted to ask from your perspective, sort of from a uh, resource-oriented view, track records are difficult. Some of them are very long, but clearly we know that um, the way uh, strategy starts uh, is certainly not the way it operates today. So there is this evolutionary element, which can be very hard to grasp uh, as an investor. What do you think is important to look at when you look at a track record? What what would you look at if you were evaluating a manager, which of course you did a few years back? Well, I think, you know, from from being on the investor side, the most important thing for us is to understand the strategy and what we think that they're doing. And then for us to have a track record which is consistent with what we think that they tell us they're delivering. Right. Now that's easy to say, but it can be really complicated to sure, test. Sure. Um, and especially in the systematic world where you don't know their <laughs> strategy, you just know that they're saying that they're doing this or that. So you have to go back and test it. But I would say that, you know, track records are, even if we know that we're not biased by them, we're always biased by them. Sure. Um, you just that one second glimpse that you take at them and the sharp ratios and Sortino ratios, we already sort of add that picture into our head. Mm. Um, so I think the most important thing looking at a track record for me is the pat is not the past, but actually a combination of, of things. And that is on a, I have to understand the strategy, mm-hmm. but B that strategy has to perform in line in the past with what I expect that particular strategy to, to deliver. And as I watch that strategy out of sample, sure. this, the strategy has to sort of deliver what I had expected within reason. Mm. So you can imagine if you have a strategy like trend following where somebody thinks you're long volatility, sure. that's a problem because sure. then volatility goes up and you get a phone call. Yeah. Or equity goes down and you get a phone call and you have a really hard time to explain that. Mm. Yeah. 
Um, I had a question the other day from uh, someone here based in Switzerland, Roman, in fact, and he asked about people's perception about trend following that perhaps it's performed poorly in the last couple of years because there's been too much money chasing trend following after the great year of 2008. When you hear something like that, what comes to mind? Well, I actually just, just wrote an article which is coming out for Eurex on, on this exact topic, and I call it uh, Return of the Trend. It's all about correlation. Okay. <laughs> um, and I'll just give you sort of a, a view on this. And, sure. And I, if you look at a trend-following system, any portfolio system in general, we basically de we depend on correlation. Mm -hmm. We depend on the diversification across markets. Mm. And regardless of looking at the capacity in the industry, even not even thinking about that, if mm. you take a graph of correlations pre in the last 20 years, it, it almost looks like a step function. Right. So up into 2008, the correlations were pretty low across all futures markets, mm -hmm. and they just shot through the roof in 2008, mm -hmm. and they stayed there until earlier this year okay, or until late 2013. And if you think about portfolio construction, the returns of trend falling is driven by divergence. Mm -hmm. And we've had some divergence sure. over this period of time. I mean, quantitative easing, all sorts of you know events like the... the um, sort of nuclear meltdown in, in Japan, those are divergent events. Mm. But in this sharp ratio is also the diversification and the risk. And when you construct a portfolio, it's not only the volatility, which has been low, but also the correlation across assets that allows you to have proper diversification. Right. And correlation being high means diversification is low. Sure. Which means that even though there may be some trends, there's a lot of risk because right. it's sort of like a one trade world. Okay. And if you look at that, that sort of coincides with a period that's been difficult for trend following strategies. Sure. So they do have profits in some areas, but there was just not enough diversification across their portfolio to, I think, to support their performance as consistent with history. Sure. Have you looked at um, price range compression? I mean, we published a, um, a short article in a hedge fund journal a couple of months ago about price range compression, which is also very easy to see when you just look at the difference between the highs and the lows on a rolling three or six month period across many, many markets. You'll see how this range has really compressed in the last few years. And of course, with, with, with compression comes smaller trends and hence smaller opportunities for trend followers. Did you look at that or? I've, I've seen some studies of that. I would like to see what I think is interesting is that I agree with most of these studies, mm -hmm. but it's interesting that now we have divergence yep. and the strategies are performing again. But so, you're also having yeah. somewhat of an expansion of, of price ranges, I would imagine, um, at the same time. But, you know, we don't need to go there. But I, I think, Niels, you're right, is that it's both. Yeah. I mean, we had both way too high correlation for the strategy. Sure. And, and we also had price com compression, which decreased the ability to capture sure. the divergence moves. Yeah. And both of those combined is, is a tough environment. <laughs> <laughs> so. It certainly has been. Now, 
I never ask the managers I speak to about their stats because I think it's uh, frankly a little bit boring uh, to talk about. But when I have someone like you on, I I want to take the opportunity and just ask you, because you've looked at this for so many years, do you have a favorite statistic when you analyze a manager? Oh, that's a hard one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can't honestly say I don't. I mean, I think you have to sort of look at so many. Sure. I mean, because especially sharp ratios are terrible because... Sharp ratios hide a lot of risk. Sure, sure, um, I agree. But I think you know, cor- correlation analysis is very mm-hmm. important. Conditional correlation analysis. I know that you know from my time at RPM, we spent a lot of time just for a particular strategy. What do we want? Now let's find some statistics that can show if they deliver that. Yeah. And that means that it's really a bespoke thing. Okay. You know, if you have a one type of manager or another, you're going to have to look at a completely different basket of performance measures. Sure, sure. The next area I want to talk about is what usually is the trading program. But today in our conversation, it'll be about the trading strategy or the model, however you phrase it, that you've used in your study that really represents the performance over this long period. Tell me about how you and Alex uh, constructed this and feel free to go in as much detail as, as, as you want. Okay, yeah, this is a, a very important and good question, Niels. And one of the chapters of our book that I'm the most excited about <laughs> is actually chapter three. Right. Um, and this is one called Systematic Trend Falling Basics. Okay. And I found that when I looked at most other books on trend following, and most sort of descriptions, it's very hard to find a specific formula that you could use as this is the formula okay. uh, for trend falling. So what we did instead is we tried to create a framework with mm. one formula. Okay. And this one formula, obviously, as I said, with science and art, can be adapted and, and made much more complex mm. um, by any particular manager. But we actually use this formula to build a framework for style analysis okay. later in the book. Sure. So we started off by kind of asking, what are the four key questions of trend falling? Mm-hmm. Well, we need to determine when to enter, mm-hmm. how large of a position to take on, sure. how to get out of a position, sure. and how much risk to allocate to any particular position. Yeah. We then go on to sort of define the five key building blocks of a trend following system. And these include data processing, Mm -hmm. which is pretty straightforward. Sure. Signal generation, position sizing, market allocation, and execution. Okay. But in this process, the most important part that we focus on is position sizing. Okay. So we focus on creating one formula for position sizing, which is a function of several key variables. Okay. So this function is that the position, the nominal position amount is a sizing function, which tells you the size. And we leave that very open in the book okay? because that is a lot of art right Right. there. Um, Right. (laughs) So the size of the position is a sizing function times the risk loading. This allows you to gauge leverage up and down Mm -hmm. um, times the capital allocated to that particular market divided by the total adjusted dollar risk 
times the dollar risk of a position. Right. Okay. So basically all your, let me do it in layman terms. Sure. <laughs> like I'll do it as if I was telling it to my, my husband. <laughs> so what you do is you say, okay, the sizing function tells you how strong your, your sort of um, strength, your, your, your sort of conviction is. Sure. So if, you're, if your models, like your moving average models, say that this is a very strong trend, then sure. your sizing function weights based on the, those, those rules. Sure. The risk loading is just a simple loading, loading of risk across markets, which allows you to lever the position up and down. Mm-hmm. So if you want to have more sort of a larger exposure, then you can expand every position at the same level. Mm-hmm. The capital allocated, that's simple. It's just the dollar amount that you put into the position. Sure. You're going to multiply that by the, the dollar risk of that one contract. Yep. And then because not all futures contracts are created equal, some are more volatile than others. Yep. We need to divide it by the total total dollar risk of the of the position. And this allows you to um, allows you to sort of adjust if you have something like lean hogs compared to oil you're going to adjust the one that's more volatile down because you need to put less capital in it to expose yourself to the same amount of risk as the other contract. Sure. Now, you mentioned signal generation. Mm -hmm. I guess there are two main forms of signal generation, I guess, in trend following. One that uses moving averages, the one that uses price breakout channels. Um, What did you use in your study and, and, and why? So we actually left that open as part of the sizing function. Mm-hmm. And then later in the book, we will apply that to the sizing function. So if we do an example, we'll say that this is a moving average system, mm-hmm. which means that the moving averages were used to create the, the sizing function. So, And we also explain that it's obviously not going to be perhaps one moving average, but it could be a basket of moving averages where you take the sort of average over a range. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is where art comes in here. <laughs> right. So, you know, this, the sizing function is the science, but the application of that is, you know, depends on how sophisticated you get in terms of creating that function. Mm. I think you also mentioned something about, I mean, I think a lot of people are focused on where did you buy something? And if you talk to people in general and they talk about their investments, they would always say, oh, I've just bought IBM. I've just bought Facebook stocks. But you rarely hear them say, I've just sold Facebook or I've just sold IBM. But you actually put a lot of emphasis, I think, on the exit of a trade relative to the entry point. Talk to me a little bit about that and why this is important for investors to be aware of. So, I mean, if you think about uh, a lot of people think that predictability is coming into play when mm. you're talking about using a trend following strategy. And if you're following a trend, you're not necessarily starting it. So I think the point of a, of a trend following strategy is there's both the entry and there's the exit. Yeah. And we explicitly explain that these decisions are different. And actually, the exit is a very important part of the whole process. Sure. And what we do to do this analysis, and this is kind of an exciting part of the book, too, is that in chapter, in chapter five, after we explain this concept of divergence and divergent risk-taking and the importance of cutting your losses, we look at trading systems 
that have agnostic entry rules. Right. And what I mean is, is that imagine that instead of actually using sort of the sort of any sort of indicator to get in, you randomly flip a coin mm -hmm. to which market to get into. Yeah. And it turns out when you look at that system, there's still performance that comes from getting out right. of the position. So that tells you something about the driving of sort of the getting out, the exit decision and trembling and how important it is. And you see that that, that varies over time. And then we also look at the entry and try and determine, okay, is there some predictability? Mm -hmm. So we look at a concept called trend leakage. Right. The idea is how often is a trend following system's position positively correlated with the future trend position? Mm -hmm. And we see that trend leakage actually does exist, and it's also time-varying. Okay. So for some periods of time, it's actually some of these trends seem to leak out some into, into market prices. Mm -hmm. But there's also plenty of times where there's no, or trend leakage is, is actually rather weak. Mm -hmm. So what that tells us is that in some scenarios, you may actually have some trends leaking out if you use a systematic approach. Right. But there's other times where it's actually... And a lot of times where it's really the sort of getting out of the positions and sort of getting out of the positions when the trends are disappearing as well, mm. that, that drive a lot of performance. Right. And I think that's the key to understand those few words you said at the end, that exits to a large extent can be the driver of the performance. Environment. We talked about it already a little bit about, you know, when these things doesn't work and when they work. But I want to talk about environment in a different context because investors and particularly institutional investors, they often talk about inflationary versus deflationary environments and how is this all going to shape up. And I noticed in the few pages that I did uh, see from your book that you actually have a, a chart of annual inflation rate in the US and the UK uh, I think it goes back to the 1700s, actually. And then you show the performance of a trend-following system in these different periods. Talk to me a little bit about these kind of environments and, and how that is framed in your and Alex's mind when it comes to trend-following. Well, I mean, I guess this goes back again to the same philosophy of, of trend-following. Trend-following is long divergence. So if inflation causes divergence great for the strategy sure maybe not great for everybody but um <laughs> it's really sort of about understanding that if inflation will drive divergence in prices then it should work i don't sort of have a sort of polar view on low inflation high inflation sure is good i just think that this is a type of strategy that's meant to adapt to sort of spectacular moves so if we see that over time as a result of the inflation, then inflationary environments of different types will be interesting for us. The same is true for interest rates. Yeah. And I get that question a lot. Sure. <laughs> so so, so yeah. if I understand you correctly, Katie, what you're saying is it doesn't really matter whether we have deflation or inflation. And obviously for the last, I don't know, 40, 50 years, we've pretty much had inflationary environments of some degree. But recently it very much looked like deflation could be back on the table. And, but what you're saying is it doesn't really matter. As long as it creates divergence, it's okay for trend followers. And when you look at the statistics from 1720 till 
about 2013, right. which is a roughly 300-year period, mm-hmm. we see that the average return during a low inflation to deflationary environment is about 10.4%. Okay. The 5 to 10% inflation is about 10.1%. And for high inflation, it's actually about 15%. Right. So what I would say is that extreme moves, just as as usual, um, extreme environments tend to have divergence and thus opportunities. So from history, it doesn't look like there's less or more momentum in a sort of low inflation versus moderate. But mm. it seems to be that high inflation, really high and possibly extremely low <laughs> um, or extremely um, extreme periods of deflation may actually cause things to be interesting for someone who's divergent. Sure. Absolutely. Do you, I mean, I know you talked about risk allocation uh, before, but do you also deal with the issue about whether uh, you should follow strategies that are fully diversified versus strategies that are focusing on, say, financial markets? Uh, do you deal with that and or do you have an opinion about it? I, I do have a, a little bit of an opinion about that, but I think it, it, it can depend. But, I mean, I think diversification is important. Mm. Um I think there are pros and cons to uh, being more or less diversified. We we address the issue of sort of diversifying the diversifier at the end of the book. Okay. But there are definitely pros and cons to uh, to how much you diversify your process. Mm. So, for example, um, a larger, well diversified CTA um, will, with many different strategies, will be much more robust over time because they mix some convergent with divergent. Mm -hmm. But it depends on what their investor's portfolio is. Um, There, you can also have a pure trend following portfolio, which is a pure divergent play. um, And you don't add any sort of, any sort of leaning in that system. Then that's a good complement to somebody who's a pure, has a very, very convergent value and sort of traditional approach, then that may be a one-shot solution to what they already have. Sure. Um, so I think it, it really depends on, investors are very heterogeneous, and some of them, I think, would benefit from a pure trend-following strategy, and some would benefit with a diversified approach. Um, of course, all of those have to be done in a very appropriate manner, and, hmm. and of course, more resources are needed to have a diversified approach. The next thing I want to talk about is risk management. And based on everything you've done and the way you look at these things, I wanted to find out how you define risk and what is the important risk to look at when you look at these strategies? Yes, and um, this is a very important question because in my opinion, I think risk management is the greatest asset of the CTA industry. Um, And what I mean by that is that risk management and sort of being sophisticated at that is the the value added that a manager has over someone sort of hiring two guys and saying, okay, build this trend following system, read Katie's book, read, you know, this book, implement this. Because having a sophisticated understanding and very good risk system 
and an allocation of understanding of how to allocate risks over time is one of the best, uh, one of the greatest attributes of professional management. And let me give you an example of this, which I think we go over with in, in chapter five of our book. Sure. Um, so the example works the following way. Imagine that you sort of one year from now had perfect knowledge of the price of one particular market. Mm. So you know that oil is going to trade at X sure. in, in one year. Now, that seems like really valuable information. <laughs> but if you just take that position and hold it over time, the risk of that position could be huge. Yeah. Because markets could go up or down or up or down over time. And you may actually get completely wiped out yeah. um, based on just the price movements. So what we do is we sort of add risk management to that trade and sort of start managing risk. And what you see is that as you manage risk over time, so maybe half of it is sort of using the forecast and half is not using the forecast, mm -hmm. that the sharp ratio of such an approach actually improves dramatically over mm -hmm. time. Um, and drawdowns also improve. Sure. So risk management is sort of the way that is the, the major value added of any trend-following system. And it's the, the art that a manager adds to sort of any sort of simple product or mm -hmm. sort of adding two guys on a team and telling them to, hey, code this. Sure. You know, the systems are not, you know, in theory, not complicated. But in practice, having a, a very sophisticated approach to risk and understanding how to dynamically adjust it properly is where you can really add value. Sure. But risk can come out in many different ways, meaning people can look at standard deviation, value at risk, margin to equity, um, risk to stops, whatever it might be. Is there something that, from your point of view, would give you more comfort uh, knowing or looking at um, when you're look at, looking at a strategy or a manager? Well, understanding how they change their risk. I mean, so how do they allocate risk? Mm. And sort of having a good idea of what causes them to allocate more or less risk to a particular position mm. is very important. Because if you, I mean, I think the real dangers is those when you have sort of, say, dynamic leveraging or when you have sort of positions growing at risk and, and, and accelerating. Sure. That's what we're trying to avoid. Um, so understanding if risk allocation is actually conditional or okay. not. And we, we actually touch on this in, in the book as well when we talk about drawdowns and we also talk about um, leveraging over time. And we discuss sort of how you can look at leverage interday or day-to-day -day and sort of determine if leverage is a function of past P&L or not. Mm. Can tell you something about how the, the manager takes his or her positions. Sure. You also mentioned, I think, something called hidden and unhidden risk. What, what do you mean by that? Oh, yes. That's one of my favorite topics. Okay. So, you know, I, I, I like this topic from going back to, I wrote a paper for the CME about this. And it was about, I think it was about 2011 or something. And I was thinking about this a lot is that trend-building strategies or future strategies in general contain much less of these hidden risks. Right. So what are unhidden and hidden risks? Right. Well, I say in, in our book, we say that, um, you know, unhidden risks are risks that come up in price. 
Okay. So price risk. Sure. Hidden risk are risks that come up not in price. So they def- they inflate sharp ratios. Mm-hmm. So liquidity risk is a hidden risk right. because it doesn't show up until it shows up. Sure. And it's very hard to measure prior yeah. to it arriving. Uh, credit risk is also hidden. Sure. It's very hard to estimate credit quality. Um, so it will come up sort of in, sh- in shocks and sort of out of the blue. And the numbers will not, no matter how hard you try and estimate default probabilities and things like that, there, there are always very few observations, which means that it's very, very hard to actually calibrate properly and risk adjust for credit risk. Sure. Um, another important one is leverage. Uh, leverage can be very transparent but there also are ways to sort of embed risk and leverage. And we go through that in detail and say, you know, leverage should be very transparent, but there are actually methodologies like uh, using dynamic leveraging where you can increase risk by creating some cyclicality in, uh, in your leverage application that won't show up on a slower frequency. Mm. So what I mean is, is that if you're losing, you double your bets. Yeah. And most trend-following systems don't do that, <laughs> sure. but some do. I mean, if, yeah. you, if you do the right analysis, you can see that, and it makes sense because it sort of creates some cyclicality in, in, in the, the application of leverage over time, which is fine as long as it doesn't catch you in the wrong direction, um, in the wrong moment. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it's actually quite topical. I mean, you and I, we're talking at the end of October 2014 and from what I hear certain strategies out there in October has had a very rough time and I'm thinking here about option strategy which again managed futures which is a word that is being thrown around a lot covers many different strategies not just trend following and part of that universe is you know, option strategies, talking about divergent and convergent strategies, it's a good example. So it's just interesting about that particular area because clearly um, there are risks there in those kind of strategies that investors may not be aware of. And um, we'll see how the month ends, but uh, it looks like it's going to be one of those months where some of these hidden risks have, have uh, come out. Well, Niels, if I give a little comment on that, sure. um, just to kind of bring this back to like derivatives 101 or something yeah. like that. Kind of, um, if you look at an option strategy, mm-hmm. it, it applies dynamic leveraging. Yeah. So let's say that you want to invest in a call option. The delta of the call option increases as a function of P&L. Sure. So that means that in some sense, you build your positions and the leverage increases. Yeah. With, the, with an option strategy. And so what that shows is that a month like this, where maybe leverage might have hurt you, uh, an option strategy would suffer. Yeah. But a trend-following strategy that doesn't do that won't. Sure. Absolutely. Great example. Thank you. And a manager that does that in their strategy <laughs> will probably have a harder time than a trend follower that doesn't use um, any le- dynamic leveraging. Yeah. True. And speaking of drawdowns, which is typically the next thing I talk to people about, in your opinion, from a sort of 30,000 feet view, have you come up with any measure that could explain or give kind of a framework for investors in terms of what kind of drawdowns should they expect from a trend follower without the red lights 
going completely, uh, you know, uh, berserk? What I would say is that if you if you look at trend followers, they have a lot more drawdowns over time mm -hmm. than equity. Right. But they're way shorter. Okay. So if you look at sort of a history of sort of drawdown picture, and we do this in the beginning of our book of an equity strategy, long equity versus trend following, you'll see that there's a lot of small drawdowns and they're very often. Mm -hmm. um, this is because most of the time I say that, you know, a lot of times you're, if you go back to the same analogy of venture capital versus private equity, right? right? Two thirds of the time, or maybe over 50% of the time, there may not be any opportunities. Mm. But when there's opportunities, you gain way more than you've lost. Right. So as a result, you're going to have to expect that a strategy like trend following that has lots of price risk and mm -hmm. no other hidden risk. Sure. Because hidden risk, what do they do? They create huge drawdowns. Yeah. And they happen rarely. Yeah. But this type of strategy is very systematic, only has exposure to price risk. Mm-hmm. And thus has lots of small drawdowns over time, which are compensated by larger returns. You say that, and I accept it, of course, coming from that world. But on the other hand, looking at the last few years, what we did see was that many managers, including those who have been around for 20, 30, 40 years, saw, in most cases, much bigger drawdowns that they have seen before and longer drawdowns. And... I know that it's very dangerous to start calling for the death of trend following and, you know, this time it's different is some really dangerous words to use. But how do you, having done all this research and studying, how do you frame the last few years uh, for CTAs and trend followers and the performance and the expanded drawdowns and prolonged drawdowns? How do you frame that in in the overall picture? Is it just because we feel it's a little bit different because we're looking at the last 20 years that we remember? Or was it a bit different this time? Well, I think it's perfect you asked that because um, a an academic uh, from, I think he's from Edinburgh, there's a new paper out that he's by, I think it's Hutchison and O'Brien. Okay. And this particular paper is called, Is This Time Different? Right. Uh, for CTAs. And okay. um, I, I think it's a very good paper to go and look at because here's what they say. So they look at many different past uh, crisis periods for trend falling mm -hmm. and CTAs. And they show that the performance of trend falling tends to be somewhat depressed post a crisis. Right. And this happens to be the case for every single crisis that they looked at. And it got me thinking a little bit, uh, listening to them talk about it, in that in some sense, there's, you know, we spend a lot of time here talking about debt overhang and sort of like the, the difficult period post a crisis of recovery. It's sort of like a recessionary period. And it seems that, you know, after the profits are made from the divergence mm -hmm. in a crisis, right. there's a period where markets have to restabilize, people have to sort of, the, the market ecology sort of has to readjust. Okay. And I would say that, you know, it just happens to be that this particular period, uh, the crisis was so bad. Mm -hmm. and, and we see that when we look at what's happening in financial, you know, politics, mm -hmm. that it's still sort of sorting itself out. 
And I'm sure you might actually find some similar results if you looked at the Great Depression, which also took a lot of time to recover. Sure. Um, So it's quite possible that, you know, this sort of delays and sort of reestablishing what is the, you know, what is the new paradigm Mm. in financial markets? You know, how long will will we be sitting with, you know, still trying to deal with EMER and still trying to sort of figure all these things out? It's not surprising to me that that, that's the case. But honestly, with correlations coming down and with a lot of these issues starting to get sorted out in financial markets and in the financial industry as a whole, we're seeing again that the strategy seems to be bouncing back. So that's why, for example, I wrote Return (laughs) of the Trend. Sure. Because I think that, you know, momentum, just like value, just like other sort of risk premia, are time-bearing. Yeah. So hopefully we're back in that time again. Sure. I think, in fact, the paper you refer to is written by a couple of guys from Bath University. And I have a feeling that that's the one that was helped uh, to come to light by Aspect Capital. And therefore, I would have linked this uh, or to this uh, in the episode that I have recently done with Martin uh, Lewick from Aspect. So people can find it there yes. if they want to. That's um, correct. Yeah. Now, in terms of drawdowns, you need to help me here because drawdowns for a manager, of course, clearly um, create some emotional roller coaster. We know that. Um, And we learn to deal with them over time. But I think one of the biggest challenges for us really are to get investors comfortable and help them through the emotional roller coaster. Because what often happens is they tend to redeem or reduce their investment at the worst possible time. They almost become trend followers on trend followers, meaning that they buy high and sell low, which is uh, not a good strategy. So how do we how do we educate them a bit and how do we um, explain that a drawdown is not quite the same as a drawdown in an equity market where there's kind of an open end of risk, it could go to zero like we have seen with some stocks. How do we explain that, do you think, in, in a language that would make them comfortable about being in a drawdown and maybe even see it as a buying opportunity? So. We actually, this is a really important question, and it's actually one of the chapters of, of our book as well. It's called Dynamic Allocation to Trend Pulling. Right. And what we sort of, I, what's interesting about this is that if you if you take the concept of that risk premia are sort of time varying, right, and there's some cyclicality, you should actually buy low and sell high. Sure. And investors tend to do the opposite. Yeah. Um, they, they buy high and sell low. Um, and this is because, I mean, if they sort of understand this, or if, if we can explain better the divergent convergent type of concept, if you have a, a strategy like trend following that over time, they actually tend to be mean reverting. Sure. Um, the strategy over a long run is, is somewhat mean reverting. So momentum actually goes in waves. Sure. So if that's the case, then you need to sort of try and make sure that you actually buy in a mean reversion sense. Mm-hmm. So you, you shouldn't trend follow trend following. Right. You should actually do the opposite. Yeah. Um, as an investor, you should buy low and sell high. So when I talk to certain investors who maybe are very familiar with this, what I, what I see now is that in the last couple of months, some of them have started to say, well, 
you know, equity markets are at all-time highs historically sure. in relative terms, that makes me concerned. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to readjust and start thinking about adding more CTAs and those that did that sure. really profited. So, sure. you know, those who were able to lock in some of their profits on the equity market and start thinking about alternatives really, really did well. Yeah. Um, and the intuition was pretty clear. You know, equity markets are at really major spectacular wins. What's the chances it's going to go that much higher? <laughs> so, you know, those who I've talked to that did that, they, they really sort of profited from that. Sure, sure. I have one more question on drawdowns. And again, I'm trying to rephrase a question that I would ask a manager, but I want to ask you the same question. Looking at the strategy, knowing all the bits and parts that you know about it is there anything that would keep you awake at night if you were running a trend following strategy is there any risk so to speak that you don't feel that the strategy handles fully it's i mean i think that it's very hard to i mean one of the things is a great advantage of a trend following strategy is it uses futures right so this means that there's only a certain amount of capital that's at risk. Mm. And because of that, and most investors who, I mean, I spent several years teaching futures markets and school and stuff like that. And even there, you know, you see that the fact that you have certain amount of capital at risk and you have limits in terms of price moves for some, some markets means that, you know, in some sense, the amount of risk allocated is really controlled. Mm. And trend following managers and futures managers have a very strong history of understanding how much how much exact notional risk that they are out they have outstanding. Mm. In the case of sort of more sort of more traditional investments, that's not always as as obvious to mm. me that we sort of have an exact calculated exposure that's quite as transparent. So let me think about what would make me nervous. I think you know the only things that make me nervous are things like operational risk. Right. And, you know, the sort of MF, something like an MF Global did some, did some sure. bad stuff sure. for our industry. Sure. But I mean, hidden risks make me nervous. Yeah. And credit risk is not an issue. Sure. Uh, liquidity risk tends not to be an issue. Sure. Um, if you look at the swap markets and the derivative markets during the financial crisis, mm -hmm. there were over 800 swap dealers that went bankrupt. Right. Wow. Uh, or that couldn't give a price. Sure. And futures markets were all open. Yeah. That doesn't mean that history will repeat itself, but it tells you something. <laughs> it certainly does. A question I get from time to time, from also from um, my listeners, and that is, how would you detect if a manager, of, in this case a trend follower, if his or her system has stopped working? Is there anything that they can look for? Ooh, that's a good one. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think, you know, this comes back to the idea that we'll probably talk about later, which is benchmarking and understanding the style of a manager. Sure. Um, Why don't we do it now? I think, yeah, <laughs> I, I think the challenge is, is that you, I mean, we've seen this over time with different managers. It depends on if what they tell you they're going to deliver yeah. isn't delivered, then you sort of start to ask some tough questions. Um, one of the problems is there's noise. Yeah. So, I mean, I know that we've seen this in the last two months. There's been tremendous discussion of this issue. Mm. Well, this manager is up 10%. Sure. And you're only up 2%. Yeah. 
are you are you five times worse? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and the the problem with that is that there's you know every system is meant to capture the divergence. Yeah. And you know each divergence is different. Mm. So you know you just hope that the signs are roughly the, the in the right direction. Mm. Um, and you have to determine sort of why and start asking some questions. So why, why did you make 2% as opposed to 10? Do you have some explanations for this? Um, was it, you know, one position or was it a sort of a general risk allocation that sure. caused this, sure. uh, this difference in performance to your peers? Mm. And if so, is there a reason that you have that, that, you know, may help me in a different scenario so that I shouldn't be concerned? Mm. Um, and this comes into the style analysis question that we um, spend a tremendous amount of time thinking about. And um, one of the things I think that is important with the book and that Alex and I did was we need to sort of fit not only do it our, you know, our way and the trend following CTA way, but we need to also fit analysis and understanding into a structure that most traditional investors are both comfortable with and understand. Mm. So when we got to the point of benchmarking, it was really funny because we <laughs> had a lot of ideas about things like dynamic allocation and we had lots of ideas about other stuff. But when it came to benchmarking, that was one of the chapters that um, and sections of the book that we were the most irritated about. Okay. Because the, the point is, is that Benchmarks in our industry is like taking a fruit salad <laughs> and, and comparing it to an apple. Okay. And, and the problem with that is that, you know, people do that. Yeah. They say, here's a fruit salad and here's your apple. Let's compare. Mm. And, and so, you know, there's a huge amount of return dispersion from, you know, each of the fruit. <laughs> yeah. So if you compare one strategy to another, they, they vary tremendously. Mm. And this is just something that has irritated investors because they say, well, you all have high correlations, but how come you're so different? And so what we did was first we looked at return dispersion, but then, you know, we had in earlier parts talked about classifying different styles of, or different, we had designed different types of systems mm. and compared them. We called them system one to system eight. Right. So for example, system one is like the purely di uh, agnostic, equal okay. weighted risk, sure. um, no biased equities and medium term. Yeah. And eight, I don't remember exactly which sure, one sure. it was, but there were eight, you know, yeah. whatever. Um, so then what we do is we, we took this uh, concept and said, you know, we don't need to have eight systems. What we can do is we can look at different construction factors. Mm -hmm. So we create a structure similar to the Pharma French three-factor model where you have a pure, and we go back to the concept of divergent risk-taking, mm -hmm. and we construct a pure divergent risk-taking strategy. Okay. So this is actually similar to a Bayesian uh, Bayesian strategy. It's very simple in its application, okay. but it's sort of the best estimate of the uptrend is how you determine what the position is. Okay. So Bayesian system, and then you have um, simple, uh, you know, what trailing stops mm -hmm. to get out for every position. Sure. And we take a basket of these strategies, and this creates an index which we call sort of the the market okay. for divergent risk taking. So this is our benchmark strategy. It's a very basic, very um, fits with the ideology of, of trend following. And we yeah. say, okay, so that's the simple one. 
Now, what can we do next? If we take that system, we can start to do some tweaks. Mm -hmm. One tweak is, is that we can decide that we have maybe some capacity constraints or that we want to constrain our risk allocation as a function of the size and liquidity of each market. Mm. So we create a size factor, which basically is a difference between the market capacity weighted index. Mm -hmm. Instead of equal allocation, we allocate as a function of capacity okay. minus the equal weighted. Okay. This tells us the value added to having smaller markets in your portfolio. Okay. Sure. So we call that the size factor. Then we look at uh, equity bias, which is another construction sure. tweak that many sure. managers use. <laughs> so we look at long minus short. Yeah. And we can see how much added equity bias changes your strategy or is included in your strategy. Mm -hmm. And then we look at trading speed. Okay. So trading speed is slow minus fast. Yeah. And what's interesting is imagine those are three different ways that you might be able to tweak your your. Um, your divergent approach. Sure. And then we can take these and actually analyze individual managers to try and determine sort of, okay, we say we take a, you know, a, a large manager. Mm. This large manager is, is going to fit the model moderately well, but they may have a, a market capacity bias. Sure. And they may have a an equity bias because sure. they add some cash equities into their into their portfolio, yeah. and then we maybe they're slower because yeah. they they don't trade as often. So when you take that structure, you can see with a simple model, does this manager fit into that structure? Yeah. What are the loadings for these different factors? Mm. And for example, two thousand and thirteen. It was actually the case that the size factor was very negative, right? Which means that bigger markets well outperform smaller. Yeah. So the size factor alone tells us something about why one manager was good in 2013 yeah. versus another. Sure. So size does matter. <laughs> Now the next area I just want to um, talk about is just trend following sort of the industry as a whole, and just a few questions to get your um, take take on that. CTA industry clearly at a difficult juncture at the moment. What do you think the biggest challenge is right now? Well, I mean, I think the biggest challenge is sort of overcoming the past and delivering and, and hoping that, again, being agnostic, hoping sure. that there are divergent opportunities in markets that we can capture mm -hmm. um, and getting back into sort of the, the, into the mainstream and list of which hedge fund strategies people people are interested in. Sure. I think the other key challenges are going to be adapting to a new environment. I mean, we definitely all have been doing that. There's more players in the market. Sure. Uh, there's different flows of capital, different retail to institutional. True. And there's a lot of competition. So yeah. making sure that you deal with that and that you deal with the new threats, like the HFT traders that... That are that are involved now. So different different things that can change how we have to sort of play the game. Yeah, absolutely. Also, want to ask for your help actually, and that is, I typically ask my guests to um, help me come up with a question for my next guest on the podcast. And I was just wondering, what would you want to ask a manager? coming to talk to me what would you be really interested in knowing about it and maybe i can add a little bit of flavor and that is what if that manager was david harding oh <laughs> um let me think for a second there then 
I think, but I don't want to ask him a question. He gets asked all the time. So exactly. This is why it's difficult. This is a challenging one. I'm still hoping that um, he's going to come and join me for a conversation, of course. Well, I don't so. want to ask a mean question either. <laughs> no, um, of course not. I think the, the key question that he's probably getting and all other managers are getting is, how do we explain our value proposition? Mm-hmm. And how do we do that in a way that justifies our fees and our sort of how the value that we propose to investors. Because mm-hmm. I think that's something that he will have a good answer to, but it's a good <laughs> question to ask him. Sure. Appreciate that. Now, before we jump to the last section, you've obviously done due diligence on the number of managers. I'm sure you've been exposed to the whole process many, many times, but as a manager, I certainly feel that there are a lot of questions that investors are not asking and that they should be asking. What do you think investors should be asking that you don't think they're asking today of a manager? I think asking for more transparency in terms of how different strategies are put together is an important point, Mm -hmm. but also asking questions about how they sort of, about, you know, backtesting and Mm -hmm. how sort of, how they think that they are not, you know, data fitting to the past is an important question they ask, but, you know, I think they ask need to ask it more. Mm-hmm. I also think that managers should take a closer look at uh, leverage right. uh, interday. Okay. Um, because one manager to another, you can't always, uh, they can be very different. Sure. Uh, we talk about that in our book. Um, and I think, I mean, having a better understanding of, of the more at a gra- more granular level of how leverage is applied, I think is an important question. Last topic, really, Katie. Uh, I call it general and fun, so it's a little bit unpredictable, I guess. What do you think it takes to become a good trend follower? What should um, someone who wants to uh, in deploy this strategy uh, for himself or become a trend following manager what kind of person or personality traits should uh, uh, a manager have like that so um, i think this is a good uh, question for me because i spent some time as a startup and i also have been on the advisor for many different small ctas and, right and this experience has sort of taught me about how to talk to them about what they should do and okay. um what I, what I generally tell them is that you need to sort of be able to communicate. Right. Um, you need to know exactly who you are mm-hmm. and you need to be able to sell to your investor what you're going to deliver to them and how you're going to do it and how you're going to sort of handle risk for them appropriately in an extremely clear and uh, structural point. Because that point, without that, then you're, you're lost. Yeah. Um, and I've seen people have, you can work on it. And I've seen people across the board, um, in that point. And one CTA that I, I was working with, um, great, great fun is a Flyberry Capital in, in, in uh, Boston mm-hmm. and they're a big data CTA. And, um, I, I met them in the very beginning and it was a lot of fun to work with them because that's what we spent a lot of time talking about is, you know, how can you, um, have the right profile and how do you sort of know the needs of your investors, but also 
uh, find a way to communicate their, your value proposition mm. uh, to them. And they have really sort of made tremendous success with that. And mm. I think that, you know, that, that's really number one. Uh, beyond that, I think that it's really a, a long journey and sure. a process of sort of, I mean, you know <laughs> better mm-hmm. than many, Niels, of the, sure. the process of building a, a CTA from, from small to large requires a, a lot of hard work. Sure. Absolutely. And I would add to that, if I may, um, because you talked about the how and the what, but actually I would add the why, um, because I think people need to understand why a manager is doing what they do Um, because often the why is really what differentiates one manager from another and we all want to be a little bit different not too different but a little bit different so I think you know communicating the why is really really important I have a cheeky question for you and that is what book would you recommend people to read and you're not allowed to say your own book (laughs) okay Trend following book or <laughs> no? Well, it could be a, it could be a book relating to trend following, and, and frankly, a lot of people have referred back to the Market Wizards book, but it could also be another book that just made uh, an impact on you, on your career, that helped you or just inspired you. Well, then I, I have a couple. Okay. I mean, one that I, I mean, if I'm going to go trend following, okay. I have a very good friend in Zurich named uh, Andreas Klenno, who's sure. also a Swede. Who, I'm not a Swede, but he's a Swede. Sure. Um, and I really liked his book on following the trend. Sure. I have read it. It's a good um, book. And then if I went for a sort of ideological books, let me <laughs> think for a second. I like, I like a lot of the books like the, the outliers and I actually like the David and Goliath book by Gladwell. Sure. Those books are very interesting. Um, and uh, personally me as from a woman perspective, I sure. also like lean in. <laughs> okay. That was a good book for those yeah. of you female few female listeners out there <laughs> <laughs> that was a good book for me i enjoyed it um, sure and so i can't promote my own book but <laughs> well i think you've done a pretty good job today of um, you. you know <laughs> making sure that everybody knows that that is a must read for sure so uh, so that i think we've done now just a, a couple of uh, short uh, questions before we round off one thing that i think a lot of managers um are feeling is becoming more and more difficult, in particular the smaller managers, and that's regulation. Is there anything in your studies, in your research, that you've come across about regulation in general, or do you have an opinion about it? Yes, I mean, we, we spent some time thinking about this, and, and I had written a piece about it uh, a couple of years ago. And, sure. and what we kind of determined is that Regulation and, and government intervention in general is sort of a mixed bag right. from a price perspective. I mean, sometimes it creates, you know, divergence you can capture, sometimes it doesn't. Um, so that, that was sort of a, a challenging question because a lot of people assume like, oh, there's an invent- intervention, you're going to make money off that. That doesn't always happen. Yeah. But from a sort of more business perspective, um, I know that here in Europe, the the AIFMD regulation is definitely very challenging um, for small managers mm. because there is sort of, on you know, you can be a sub-threshold manager, but that limits who you can actually get as an investor. Mm. So this kind of suggests to me that these regulations are going to be very, very tough on the, on the hedge fund industry becoming, maintaining its sort of innovation uh, from the lower ranks. And I think that's really sad because... Yeah. Um, 
you know, that's where we all know that innovation happens where sort of new ideas come to life. And if, you know, regulations become too punitive and the industry becomes too overregulated, then it's going to actually ultimately just cost the investors more uh, to pay for all this. Sure. No, I mean, I, I know agree. it's good, it's good, but it is going to be more expensive. Sure. And there'll be more barriers to entry. And I already see that. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's a good point. Katie, could you tell me a fun fact about yourself? Something that even people who knows you may not know about you. And I don't mean your husband. I mean, sort of people a little bit outside that. Frame. Okay. Um, I guess one funny thing about me is uh, my my advisor, Andrew Lowe, used to always tell me, call me the counter example. Right. Um, because he always said that people meet me and they think I'm one way, but I actually sure. am different. Yeah. And so like, uh, for an example, I, I'm very friendly and very uh, approachable person, but I actually used to play college hockey. <laughs> So women's eye hockey. <laughs> so if whenever I'm in a tough situation and sure. I've got that smile on my face, I right. just think about Katie, put the helmet on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I tell myself to put my hockey helmet on. Sure. And um, and then I sort of get in that zone. Um, I played hockey in in college as a, a previous figure skater. Sure. So I'm very eloquent, but I love that you know sort of be. I, I have a tough edge to me as well. So sure. That's that's what most people don't know. Fantastic. So. No, that's great. Great. Now I said earlier today that there's certainly questions that investors, in my mind, fail to ask or may not think about. So I also want to turn it on myself today. Is there anything you feel that I missed in our conversation, something you want to bring up? I want to make sure I do justice to your book, your and Alex's book, and uh, to the topic we've discussed. I mean, honestly, Niels, I've really enjoyed the conversation. And, and I, I think you touched on so many important issues. I think especially risk management is something that I think that you should keep going farther and asking people about because I think it is part of the major value proposition. So that's one area that that I hope that you sort of can pick out a little bit more with more uh, sure. professionals in the future because I think that investors need to know that. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, it's been great talking to you. Great. Final question, almost there. Looking into the future, Katie, what do you see for trend following slash managed futures and what does your own future hold? Well, I think that, you know, hopefully the worst is over for us in the trend following space. But those of us who've been in this space know that it's always a bumpy ride. Sure. Um, and we just have to keep sticking to what we believe in. And over time, the risk will pay, be paid. Um, so this strategy will, and this industry has a value added over time. So yeah. we just have to, you know, keep doing what we do and keep uh, delivering uh, what we can over time. Yeah. And for me personally, um, so we had the large quest of, of finishing the book, mm. and um, that sort of came out in August. And sure. uh, I've actually decided to uh, return to the industry. Okay. And I will be, and have been um, in discussions, and now have signed to sure. um, join Campbell and Company as a director of investment strategies okay. because I want to go back into um, into the world of, of hedge funds and, and sort of working with investors and working with traders and, and with the markets every day. 
Fantastic. Well, on that topic, I can only uh, remind our listeners that, uh, in fact, the president of Campbell and Company, Mike Harris, was on the podcast last week. So there is uh, definitely much more to be learned on that uh, company and strategy uh, for that. But congratulations. Final thing, if people want to reach out to you, Katie, and learn more about your book or some of your publications, where's the best place to find you? Um, I have some some uh, publications on, at the CME group, sure. uh, but we also have sort of you can find our book on Amazon, iTunes, um, pretty much anywhere. I also have a if you're interested in convergent divergent, I did a TEDx talk on that topic. So okay. if anybody's interested in that and um, also sort of via email, um, I think my email's out there. Sure. So. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, we will um, we'll link up to you on the show notes. And if you have any publications you want us to uh, feature on the uh, on our website, feel free to uh, send them to me. But uh, this was really uh, fun. It was a pleasure, Katie. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and um, I hope that we can continue our conversation at a later stage and see how you're doing in your new uh, journey and. Um, yeah, really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Niels. It's been a pleasure. Um, really great talking to you. Great stuff. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.